Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Timsa Leadership Podcast. My name is Eric Claus, and I have the honor to be able to be your host. In this episode, I have a conversation with an amazing person and an exceptional leader, Ms. Krista Hagen. Krista holds a national leadership position for one of the country's largest transport systems. In this conversation, Krista and I discuss some lessons learned from her 25 plus year career as a leader and flight nurse. Krista will also share how surviving a medical helicopter crash changed the course of her life and how she is using that experience to add value to others. Krista, we're excited that you were joining the Timsa Leadership Podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be with you guys today. So we are officially nationally or a national podcast because you are our first guest that uh, we are talking to from the near Seattle, Washington area. So a different time. So yeah, so this is a, a cool experience for us. Love it. Love the pioneering going on here. <laughs> and we're we're recording uh, in this uh, will likely be uploaded on our website or YouTube. And I'm in the room. We have, you know, kind of a, a studio set up in the Williamson County area, which is just south of Nashville. So Lee Blair is sitting across from me. So uh, we're yeah, we're excited. I wanted to um just ask you, you know, there's a lot to your story. And I just kind of wanted you to start off by just kind of sharing, you know, your leadership journey, because you have so much experience. And do you mind sharing that with us? Not a bit. Um, Where to begin? So, as you know, um, I went to nursing school, which I had never intended to become a nurse. I'm not even sure how that happened. I'm glad it did. It's been an incredible career, um, being able to hear the stories of so many, I mean, thousands of patients and hear all different perspectives and different from different walks, people from different walks of life and all. It's just been an an amazing privilege to be able to be a nurse. Um, so I was in the emergency department for some time and it was, it's kind of interesting looking back because I had some time and I decided to go back to graduate school when I was working as an emergency nurse, kind of within my first, I'd say six or seven years of that, um, because I had time and I thought I'd need it. It's funny because it wasn't for anything in particular, Um, but I I did that and I felt like it's interesting. I'm so grateful to my, you know, former self for making that decision because it was an important part of my leadership journey, honestly, is receiving that education and then being able to to meet the people um, in my graduate school class and things like that. So I worked at an emergency department and then uh, transferred up to a level one trauma center emergency department where, you know, in both of those venues, in terms of leadership, I had opportunity to serve on committees, um, chair like the shared governance committee, had the opportunity to be a charge nurse and you know, those that I, I would kind of consider, you know, really significant leadership positions for myself at the time, um, because you're there where the rubber meets the road, mm-hmm. you know, as the charge nursing department, I have immense uh, respect for charge nurses. And I was coached and mentored by some absolutely incredible people. And I am eternally grateful to their influence in my career. Um, I moved from the level one emergency department up to the ICU. I went through an ICU consortium where we had education that was specific to ICU nursing. Again, another incredible experience there. I worked in the burn ICU and it also, um, the, the, the pediatric ICU for trauma was on that floor. So we worked there and then we also got overflow from all of the other ICUs. So medical trauma, cardiac, uh, neuro. So got some really great experience there. And on all of that experience, I think that we pick up, you know, in, in our any given field are the building blocks for leadership in a lot of ways because we move towards mastery of the of the subject matter in whatever the realm is that we practice. And so it's true for, you know, anybody in healthcare, anybody in EMS or medical or I think, you know, pretty much any industry getting all that hands on in-depth practical experience, a lot of good mentoring and coaching along the way. And, you know, in turn, 
you know, I try to model those behaviors from the people that mentored and coached me. And so then I began to help mentor and coach sort of the newer people coming in. And, um, and that was another kind of stepping stone, I think, in the leadership journey. And then I went from there to flight nursing, which got knocked way back down to ground zero because it was a whole new realm and the learning curve was incredibly steep. And uh, when I first started, I often thought, you know, they chose the wrong person. Um, Imposter syndrome, right? (laughs) Imposter syndrome, honestly. But fortunately, you know, I was able to scramble up that learning curve and it turned out to be, you know, just a, a really epic time in my career, just incredible people. The work was incredible. The environment, working as a team with a clinical partner and pilots and mechanics and communications specialists and all the people that support air operations. Uh, it's just an absolutely incredible experience, really challenging, high stress. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I was involved in uh, an adverse event myself. So, um, well, first of all, we had a fatal helicopter crash and that was in um, October of 2005. And then, you know, that was of course absolutely devastating. And I know that a lot of our, our um, friends and colleagues in EMS and our medical have suffered line of duty deaths at their organizations yeah. or have lost people that they care about. And so I just kind of want to pause on that point just to, you know, honor the memory of those that we've, that we've lost. We've all lost. Yeah, definitely. And then, um, and then just a month later I was in a helicopter crash myself. And so it was a very surreal time, I think for our organization and for me personally, and, I think, you know, it it was such an adverse time that it's interesting because philosophically speaking, those really, really tough times can be very transformative if you allow them to be. And so while it was extremely painful going through all of that um, for not just myself, but our program and our my friends and family and our our whole community here, now that I'm on the other side of it, having worked through a lot of the the difficulties at that time, I feel that it, it really helped kind of bolster, you know, where I've gone in my career and and thusly sort of the, the leadership traje- trajectory. Um, so once I kind of began recovering from that whole um, episode, um, I went back to work in the emergency department and it was interesting working back in the in the emergency department after becoming after being a flight nurse because I learned a lot from aviation and what aviation can help bring to healthcare in terms of managing risk and things like that. And um, you know, I had noticed aspects of how the uh, the crashes were managed that I thought, you know, I wonder what we can learn from this. I wonder how we can learn to mitigate future risk. And I wonder what we can learn to help support the families of the fallen. And I wonder what we can learn to help su- support survivors and surviving programs as they go through adversity like this. And I had an opportunity then to begin work in patient safety for um, an air medical transport entity. And so I took sort of everything I had been studying and learning since the um, the crashes at our organization, and I applied them to the clinical realm. And it was it was always interesting to me because working in the emergency department in the ICU was very interested in prevention because I'd see illnesses and injuries that were entirely preventable and all of the pain and suffering that accompanied them and the the, the economic and non-economic costs of those. And I was like, gosh, how many people have to die at this intersection before we put up a stop sign? That yeah. kind of thing, right? Yeah. Metaphorically yeah. speaking. And so I applied those principles to the clinical realm um, on the air, in this air medical transport um, organization and sort of drew from several different models that I, I felt were useful and try to kind of try to pull out the best of the best of each of those models and morph them into something where we could really shift culture and change the conversation around how we manage risk and talk about adverse events and those types of things. And it's really, and so now I've I've ended up in this in a national director position for patient safety. And you know, on that note, should really state that you know the views that I'm expressing here are my own, <laughs> and I'm not representing any particular entity or um, 
program or any anybody else than, than myself. But I love the opportunity to participate in a leadership podcast because when you think of leadership, I know that there are formal and informal leaders and there are you know, titles and hierarchy and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But when you're in the safety world, mm-hmm. I don't have any authority, so to speak. Yeah. In that, and I haven't had any yeah. in sort of the, the patient safety world. I don't hire and fire. You know, I don't manage in that way, yeah. I guess, so to speak. And so I have to rely exclusively on influence. Yes. And that, you know, when it comes to leadership... <laughs> And that's something that I've really, I think, been able to develop largely over my nursing career, you know, yeah. and that type of thing. So it's it's been a it's a long answer to your very short question. So thank you. <laughs> no, it, I think it's great. You you mentioned influence, and I want to talk to you about specifically influence, but I want to go back because your your story is amazing, and I have a couple of questions for you that I'm curious about, and I know our listeners are. So you were, as a team, one of um, your helicopters, you lost an entire team. Is that correct? That's Um, correct, yeah. And then how long after that crash was your crash? It was almost exactly one month. Okay, so I have a couple questions for you. And if I'm out of bounds, you just tell me, and and we won't talk about that. the, these type of events in, in losing a coworker, if you're in this field long enough, you're going to experience it. And you come back to work the next shift, maybe you taking some time off, you're thinking about it, you can't shake it, and it's part of you, you know, sometimes for an extended period of time. So I imagine on your side, you, you're, you're dealing with a loss of friends, with colleagues, and you know that inherently when you go up into an aircraft, it's risky. You know, how was that transition before the crash? Now, I'm going to talk about the crash, but before the crash, your first shift back on on the aircraft, what was that like for you? Oh, it's that's a great question. I think that, you know, we were grief stricken. Um there was a great degree of uncertainty because that crash occurred into the water and the depth of water um, was such that a portion of the aircraft was not retrievable. And so we would never know. And we still don't know exactly why the crash happened. And so when, you know, you're, you're getting back into an, an aircraft that's of the same, you know, sort of make and model as the aircraft that crash, you know, of course, your leadership and your safety team are evaluating those aircraft to determine if there's a systemic problem with the aircraft, right? Right, And the manufacturers and such, that's critical. But there's still this high degree of uncertainty because you don't know what happened. And at the same time, there was sort of this sentiment that, and, and people actually articulated this, and I think that this is, kind of consistent with human nature and people in our industry to say, well, you know, we've had this crash. And so our risk of having another crash is very low because we basically, you know, had our our share of tragedy. And it's interesting because life doesn't work like that. Right. And so um, there was this. There's nothing linear about the grief process, right? We talk about the stages of uh, stages of grief and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and all of those things, which are very useful. I think they were intended for terminally ill patients. But when you're talking about abrupt loss of this type of trauma, it's very this massive swirl of all kinds of different emotions simultaneously. One moment you're doing well, next moment you're being ambushed by this wave of grief, um, and so you know the predictability of that is is questionable. And then when you go back out to work in the community, people in the community know what happened. And and so there's the, you know, caring looks, comments of, you know, we feel for you, those types of things. And so even though you're trying to sort of get back to the business of caring for the our community members, it, it never it never stops. 
being the the event, the loss never stops being in your head. One, because it's just there, but then two, you're just faced with it with every conversation that you have, which it's just the reality. Like I would never discourage it. I would never discourage our the people in the community from expressing their condolences. I would discourage them them from asking sort of you know to speculate on why things happen or yeah. to kind of go into depth especially when you're trying to focus on caring for a patient. Yeah. Um, but it was incredibly difficult uh, yeah. to go back. But then there, you were also kind of compelled mm -hmm. intrinsically to go back because you're here to care for the community. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of this interesting juxtaposition to try to operate in. Yeah, sure. You had mentioned when we did a pre-interview and I, I haven't been able to really put that I, I've been thinking about your comment a lot and you had said and I understand a little bit better but I want you to talk about it but you said you were prepared before the crash happened did I did I understand that correctly and yeah uh, and and I paused you and I said Krista I really want to know what you meant by that comment because I'm looking at it from, I mean, I just want you to explain because I can't even articulate what's in my mind right now, but here you are a month into it. In your mind, you're prepared, but what does that mean? And then, so let's start with there. I'm, I'm fascinated by, by that comment. Absolutely. Um it's basically, I felt like I was as prepared for the crash that I was in as I could have been. And that's credit to my organization, um, which to your listeners might seem like a funny thing to say in light of having two catastrophic events kind of back to back like that. But this is where we have to really step back and say, um, it'd be really easy to point our fingers at an organization and say, oh, they're like, you know, unsafe or that kind of thing. But even this far down the road, I haven't been able to draw any sort of common thread between the crashes that we have. They were entirely different crashes. And I think it was largely just really bad luck, honestly. And and so credit to my organization because they had a very progressive safety culture for the day. This was back in the early 2000s. And we had a very proactive and progressive safety committee we had survival training that was, we had winter survival training, dryland survival training, water survival training, where we get, you know, dumped into the pool, strapped into the kind of makeshift um, aircraft. We had to egress from the water, um, which we learned some incredibly valuable lessons from that. Um, we had good crew resource management training, like how do you communicate? How do you work as a team? How do you use all of your resources to make good decisions? And... We had, I felt, you know, really strong relationships between our clinical crews and our pilots. And, you know, it wasn't perfect, of course, you know, no places, but I took all that training seriously. And it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, there are those people who think that, you know, these types of events won't happen to them. And I get that. I think it's human nature to a certain extent. I just it didn't happen to be one of those people. I recognize that I'm somebody that that does work in this industry. Why wouldn't that happen to me yeah. versus somebody else? Yeah. I'm here. I'm flying. I know there's risk and I'm going to accept the fact that something could happen to me and I'm going to prepare accordingly. So my organization was really kind of critical in supporting the preparation from the organizational side. And then I, I'm a big believer in shared accountability. So I've, I, as an individual, did my own preparation as an individual. I knew that they had had a fatal crash 10 years earlier. Um, but when I started the organization, I didn't ask anything about safety because I figured, oh, whatever the problem was, I'm sure they fixed it. Sure. You know, not, yeah, I had no idea what I didn't know. And, um, and so now I recognize the complexity of the risks, you know, in our yeah. environment and there are so many different things that can kind of go sideways. So, but I, I had, I, I had a will, even though I was in my, you know, gosh, late twenties, early thirties, 
I had my beneficiaries all up to date. I prepared all those things because I knew there was risk and at least gave me some peace of mind Mm -hmm. knowing that if something happened, one, you know, we had done everything that we could have could have done as an organization. And two, I had done everything that I could have done as an individual. So that's that's kind of the gist of it. Okay. And I know that certainly shaped your your career and how you you um, you look at errors and you know preventing things and you know in thinking about our conversation today I reflected back in I was 19 when I started paramedic school and uh, went through paramedic school through my 20s I graduated just about three weeks before my 20th birthday as a medic and when I was doing my interview, here I am, 19, I believe, and the medical director uh, came in and was doing paramedic interviews. And this was a different time and place, right? Paramedics were, you know, kind of newer on the, on the scene. And I'm, I'm a young kid. I'm naive. I don't know what I don't know. And he fires this question at me, and he said, Eric, he said, how are you going to handle if you make a mistake that kills a patient? I can, rem- Krista, I can remember how I feel right now when he asked me that question, and I didn't know how to answer it, and I, I think I said something to the extent of blah, 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 I will learn from my mistakes. <laughs> However, when I was part of a couple of errors in my, you know, 30-plus year career that had impacted patients and have been part of situations that the patient did die, but you, you, you it, it's it's very difficult. Like I still think about that, but it's a really weird thing. And then part of the role that I do now, you know, we try to help uh, team members and and organizations if an error happens to you know become better as a result of it. But you know, we we have a lot of people from uh, experience levels that are are listening to this. So is how, what advice would you give them? about getting into the field, maybe they're young, they haven't made an error, and what advice would you give them on, if they do make an error, how do they handle it? How do they recover? How do they view it? Because we beat ourselves up, like nobody could tell me anything, because I am literally going to destroy myself on why'd I do that? And it, it's not empowering, but what are your thoughts on wh- what do we need to do? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, um, it is. And my approach on that stems back to actually the crash that I was in. Um, because the reason that we crashed in, in it was a brand new helicopter. The reason we crashed is because our pilot, who was a highly experienced, highly respected, you know, compassionate, committed person, professional, um, he had inadvertently lifted from a rooftop helipad with one engine in idle. And so we couldn't sustain flight and we crashed off of this rooftop from a, of, a, of a hospital to the courtyard below and destroyed the, the helicopter. And by the grace of God, all of us, including our patients survived. And so that was an error on his part. And my thought was there, but for the grace of God go I, as a healthcare professional, because I can err in ways that harm somebody significantly or that that could precipitate their death, right? And that was always my perspective on that. Well, this was before Just Culture had taken a foothold. And again, this this conversation is certainly not to point fingers at any um, organization or entity or operator, but what happened to him was he was terminated. And as somebody that was sort of you know, on the receiving end of an adverse event, that bothered me a lot because I felt that there was probably more to the story. And so when I studied the NTSB report, when it came out and talked about the probable cause of the crash and such, there were aspects that were listed as contributing factors that were things like shortcomings in his training on this particular aircraft. It was brand new. Okay. He had almost 8,000 hours in helicopters, and he only had 15 hours in this particular make and model of aircraft. In my mind, the the helicopter 
had a single point of failure for a critical operational aspect of the helicopter. So we know that humans err. We know that human error is ubiquitous. We shouldn't use it as an excuse, but we have to recognize that it's ubiquitous and design our systems and our machines and our processes in ways that capture human error before they result in harm. And so there were all of these different aspects that, that contributed to what happened, any of which, if they'd been different, it, it wouldn't have happened. And so, but what I saw, and maybe there was more to it that I just, I wasn't made aware of, but what I saw was he was terminated and then it was kind of deemed good and we're good to go. Okay. And I was like, well, wait a minute, there's all these system problems that are still creating these latent hazards and conditions that are just sort of lying in wait, waiting for the next fallible human being to err. And so I took that philosophy and I brought it to the clinical side of the world. And so, you know, forgive me for waxing way philosophical on that. But what I would say is that we recognize that we're all human and humans err. What we want to do is help you understand the risks in the environment that you're working within and the why behind what ask you to do certain things um, or ask you to not do certain things. You know, a lot of our policies and processes are, you know, as they say, written in blood. Mm -hmm. But often I don't know that we do a very good job of explaining the why. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there is an invincibility component out there where, again, this won't happen to me. And when I interview people after adverse events, what I hear very frequently is it happens so fast. And so it's helping people recognize one, yes, it can happen to you because, you know, like, like me being a flight nurse and accepting the fact that I could be involved in an adverse event, all of us being clinicians in a very overly complex, you know, world of healthcare and transportation. You know, we operate at the intersection of those two highly complex, high risk industries. Yes, it can happen to us. Yeah. Should it happen? You got to immediately bring it forward. Yeah. And it's difficult, though, because not all organizations have a culture that that makes it easy to bring or at least less uncomfortable to bring those types of things forward. But I think if people understand that we know humans error, we're going to look at this thoughtfully. We're going to look at the whole situation. We're not going to just focus on you. We're going to look at our systems as an organization and say, what did we contribute to this situation? So back to the whole notion of shared accountability, we're responsible as an organization for the systems that we built and for the, the training and education that we provide and for the tools and technology and equipment for the support that we provide to optimize the environment that you work in. You as the individual are responsible for, you know, making good choices within that, um, within those systems and then letting us know what the weaknesses in the systems are so that we can fix them and continue to bolster those safety nets. Yeah. You know, one of the things That's that... That's what I would say. Um, w one of the things that stands out from your comments, and I want to share this from, let's say that a coworker makes a mistake and you haven't in your career yet. I think it is a natural instinct to judge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> However, when you are in the person or you're in the seat, when you make an error, you don't judge the same way. You're more empathetic and you realize that in the heat of the battle that it's one thing to work a simulation in a room with a plastic mannequin. It's another thing to work it on the side of the interstate when you're feeling the wind of the 18-wheelers flying by it completely changes the dynamic. So I think, you know, one of the things that I think we can do, and this is not just in the professional world, but in the, the personal world, is that we never intend to make mistakes. And we just have to be very careful about how we critically judge somebody when they do make a mistake. And I love leading into this, and we're, we're going to date ourselves a little bit with the movie the titanic okay so yes. <laughs> we 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 know the story this is kind of like old school yes you know some of the young people have have 
you know, heard of the story. But if you were to generally ask, you know, why did all of those people die? The, the simple analogy after seeing the movie, you know, there's some things, but basically you're like, there's no, there's not enough lifeboats. However, your analogy of why that boat sank, would you share that? Because it is quite fascinating with your view because you look at things differently and we need to learn from that. But so my question is, why did so many people die on the Titanic? Was it one cause or more? I know the answer, but let's have fun with that. No, I love that. I love that. Yes. Um, I've, I've studied, you know, to some degree, the Titanic and events like Deepwater Horizon and, you know, even things like the movie, The Perfect Storm. And you look at all of you can you can see it. And if you watch it, you know, if you've, if you've never seen it, you watch it through the first time for the entertainment value. And then if you go back and watch it from a risk mitigation perspective and from a human factors perspective and from a systems perspective and from a crew resource management breakdown perspective, so many factors and so many lessons. And so on the Titanic, you know, why did over 1500 people die in a, you know, historically in aviation and healthcare and EMS, we've been, you know, pretty punitive toward individuals. And then guess what? we have the same issues, the same adverse events happening over and over and over again, because what we really need to be looking at are the systems. And it's not to absolve individuals from responsibility at all, but it is to say, you know, back to shared accountability, if we truly have a just culture, shared accountability is a foundational tenet. So if we're just looking at individuals and applying the algorithm, you know, du jour and then walking on, we're missing this whole opportunity to look at all of the upstream contributing factors or, you know, holes in the Swiss cheese or links in the error chain or all of these different uh, things that contributed to what happened. So on the Titanic, it would be really easy to say, well, the captain was the leader of the ship and let's just let's just blame him. And sadly, he's perished. And so problem solved. But there's a an organization called Think Reliability, and they have they do causal factors mapping and contributing factors mapping. And if you look at their map, it's really dizzying because they basically go through the process of, I know they call it the five whys. Um, to me, it should be the 10, 15, 20 right. <laughs> whys, right? Sure. They say, you know, the, the boat sank, or no, there's a loss of life. Why? You know, because the boat sank. Well, why did the boat sink? Well, there, are, there were a whole lot of structural issues related to the, the ship itself. And so from the strength of the bulkheads, the fact that the bulkheads weren't sealed, the strength of metal, the rivets that they used um, kind of expedited its breaking up and, and the lot, the sinking of it. Of course, they didn't have enough lifeboats. It was nighttime. The water was calm and flat, so they didn't see any splash off the iceberg. The lookouts didn't have binoculars. They were going too fast because they were showing off. They couldn't execute the kind of turn they needed to, to evade the iceberg because of the rudder size. And so the point is, it's a really fabulous illustration of if you simply blame an individual and move on, you never have the opportunity to build a better boat, whatever that might be. Yeah. And so by actually looking at all of those factors that led to the sinking of, of the ship, um, we have an opportunity to build a better ship. And I would love to see us do that in a lot of different aspects of healthcare. I think there's, you know, some understanding now and a shift of the culture, but I still think we're lacking that just culture, high reliability, spirit of shared accountability where the organizations are actually looking at themselves to see, you know, how they kind of put people in the positions that they're in. And yeah. then the people at the pointy end get blamed, right? Yeah, I I, I need to I need to uh, pause for a second, and and I want to uncover a couple of key points that you just mentioned. So, you know, in our world, and in healthcare, in you know, type A, ED, emergency transport. You know, if we receive feedback from an institution that says, you know, you made an error you know, instantly, I think instinctively, we are wanting to call that provider in and we're saying what happened. And now after talking to you, I, I think I, I would even 
expect everybody to listen to this that if you get that feedback or an error happens to really pause and think from a leader standpoint what is it that i need to look at to change how did i contribute to that based on not seeing it clearly right we're looking at it okay you gave the wrong medication but what you're sharing with us is that don't get focused on what happened specifically that the outcome or the medication it's more than the medication error it is more than a failed airway is that what you're telling me oh that's exactly i love how you stated that because that's exactly it we tend to focus just on the adverse event when there's a far bigger picture yeah yeah and so when i was doing uh, these reviews more you know myself um, in my previous patient safety position I would have the crew and this was all virtually, right? But I would I would be on the phone with them or on a Teams call and I and I would say, you know, first of all, I, it's, this is basically my um my personal process and you know, I'm not telling people how they should do it. I just it worked for us. And that was, you know, I'd get on get on the call with the crew, thank them for their time, acknowledge the second victim experience, which is that how we are impacted when there's an error or an untoward event or outcome um, in the work that we do. I mean, that's that's a phenomenon, right? It's been well studied. I've had some great conversations with Dr. Susan Scott, who's one of the subject matter experts on that. She's got some great research and articles out there, but it's what you're saying, what you said earlier about we beat ourselves up. I spent three quarters of my time trying to get people to stop beating themselves up, which, you know, I get it. And, you know, we've all made errors. And, and you know, I think that we who are in these types of positions should demonstrate that vulnerability and say, and I do that too. I'm like, you know, I remember my first medication error Mm -hmm. and I talk about it and I talk about how I felt, you know, and that I get it and that they're not alone in what they're going through. So thank you for coming, making sure that they have resources to support them during the call and and afterwards. And I don't ask them if they're okay because they're always going to say fine or by and large, they're going to say fine. So I automatically just give them the resources that they have them. They can reach out as needed, unfettered by, you know, another layer of person to have to go through. And then I talk about the purpose of the call, which from a patient safety perspective, risk mitigation perspective is to learn. And sometimes I talk a little bit about, you know, we recognize how how complex the environment is that you work within. And we also recognize that there are circumstances beyond your control and there are system factors at play here. And so we wanna work collaboratively to understand those. And I work remotely, the teams with boots on the ground are my eyes and ears. And so Mm -hmm. I need to have that kind of relationship with them where they will allow themselves to be vulnerable with me. And so the purpose of the conversation is to learn. And the protocol for me is I just ask them to each walk through the entire scenario from start to finish uninterrupted and uninterrupted because then we we prevent the the rabbit hole adventures and the distraction and kind of tossing their off the their chain of or train of thought and then it allows them not only to feel heard but be heard because it forces the rest of the people on the call to listen with the intent to understand rather than the intent to re- reply hat tip to Stephen Covey for that quote. And then I just ask one of them to walk me through. And then as they walk through, I'm looking at, I'm listening for human factors, influences, I'm listening for systems issues. And then when they're done telling their stories, you know, when the first crew member is done, I listen to the the second crew member. And this is for, I should caveat this by saying, um, it's different if, if a case has to go down the the law department trajectory. Sure. They have a very specific way of interviewing and you know, and they have a reason for that. But for a safety risk mitigation, patient safety trajectory, um, I found the more collaborative, the better. And so when we're at the end of them talking through their stories, you know, the rest of the people on the call, whoever that may be, will ask questions, clarifying questions and that type of thing. And then for myself, I'll summarize at the end. I want to start this out with a really, you know, a positive collaborative tone and I want to end it on a really collaborative tone. And if there's any kind of aggression or hostility or blaming or escalation during the course of the call, I I uh, reserve the right to terminate the call. You know, so that we can 
get, you know, get it. If, if I can't correct it, correct our trajectory in the middle of the call, I will terminate it because I'm not going to allow it to turn into some, you know, unnecessarily dramatic, you know, dust up when it needs to be calm and factual and collaborative and that kind of thing. And so at the end of the call, I summarize and say, you know, these are the systems issues that you've helped us identify. These are the human factors. And these are some suggestions for, you know, addressing those things. What do you think? You know, are we are we on track with this from your perspective? Because you guys are the ones that do the work every day. So mm -hmm. you know better than I mm -hmm. whether this is going to make your job easier, or your job harder. And then we, you know, create working groups and embark upon process improvement projects, which are resource intensive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The but then the people that at the heart of the issue, if we are able to successfully complete a process improvement initiative and audit those those the implementation of that and, and discover that we actually did mitigate the risk, then we can circle back around to the original crew and say, look it, you've helped us by by allowing yourself to, you know, share even though it wasn't comfortable, perhaps, what happened. You have helped us and contributed to the improvement of patient care across the whole, you know, organization. And you've saved your fellow crew members from perhaps similar um, events. And so I, I hope that they can feel really good about that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm putting myself in the position that if I had to talk to you and I made an error, you know, I would be terrified, right? Because we're in positions and, you know, we're like, oh, my gosh, Krista's calling me. Like, what did I do? Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make light of but there's so many um, you know, serious things in there. W one of the things that I want to um, take a moment to talk about, because I think it's impactful for not only our professional lives, but personal lives, a, a leadership nugget that I picked up on is you ask a question and you do not interrupt them and you let them talk. That is so difficult to do because if we think back in our, in our lives, it's so easy to interrupt someone while, while they're speaking and that that is I, I don't want to lose that with the viewers and the people listening to this that that is such a very powerful communication tool in leadership and as i'm going to be transparent with you for a moment and i think the 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 audience is getting more comfortable with that but I would have loved to have learned that in my marriage and with my children <laughs> a long time ago because I think what happens is when we interrupt, and it was another part that you talked about, you know, as soon as things become emotional and there's back and forth, if you think about it, at that point, the communication is over. It is an argument. It's emotional. It's reactionary. And then you're exhausted. And then you're, it, it's just a disaster. But you know, that Stephen Covey uh, quote that you were talking about or, you know, one of his laws in the seven, um, seven habits of highly effective leaders is, you know, making sure that the other person feels like you understand their point of view is so powerful. And I've used that so many times in my, in my leadership journey because people feel like they need, they, they need to share what happened from their view. And we have to be careful as leaders. And when I say leaders, we're not just talking about professionally in our home lives. You know, when we come in and we can control a conversation, but we're like, hey, I really want to understand what happened. Please tell me. And then they go through it. And it, it's just a fascinating thing. And, um, you know, one of the uh, – I'm looking at my notes here. I, I wanted to ask you what, what advice would you give – a new person that is a brand new nurse is a brand new EMT a brand new paramedic and they are getting ready to get into this and they're terrified after our conversation they're like what have I done I've went to school and I should have gone to school but what would you tell those individuals that are getting into the field and what do they need to do with some of the information that you shared and there's other things I want to talk to you about but be before we transition what advice would you give them? Well, I think patience 
with themselves and others is critical um, because, you know, honestly, the more I know, the more I know I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they're never stop learning. Um, subject matter mastery, I think, is important. The ability to understand how to communicate effectively if you notice something or if you're asked to do something that you don't feel is right, how do you how do you articulate that in a way that's maybe assertive but not aggressive or that gets the attention of the people that, you know, whose attention you need to get? And it's hard because sometimes we have steep authority gradients in healthcare. So or in, in aviation. So like, you know, pilot in command second command if that authority gradient is too steep the second in command might be reluctant to say anything because it's kind of you know i'm the captain i'm in charge if you have too flat of an authority gradient then there's no leadership and so where do you place that authority gradient and this is true between new nurses and seasoned nurses or maybe a nurse and a physician colleague or maybe clinicians and executive leadership you know, and so and that that might be a little bit too meaty for new people, but you have to be able to, um, or at least work toward effectively communicating. And you know, you talked about listening just now, and and listening is a big part of that. And it goes to like listening to your patients. We get so so caught up in the machine, right, of healthcare mm-hmm. that sometimes we're not listening to the people who know best often about what what's what their issues are and those are the patients right yeah and sometimes we in the systems aren't listening to the people who know best who are the patients in our crews and so um for new people coming in i think um not being afraid to ask questions and especially when you're unsure of something you don't know and even if you get beat up which is very unfortunate you know, we should be able to, or new people should be able to ask questions without getting beat up. Yeah. But even if you, even if you get beat up, be persistent and never stop asking questions if you have them. And then I think making sure that you are supported in the work you're doing, because mm-hmm. obviously burnout is a massive problem right now. Suicide is a massive problem right now. Um, traumatic stress, grief, complicated grief, all those types of things. And so being mindful of the impact that this work can have upon you, not only if there's an acute sort of crisis or tragedy, but also the cumulative stress that we that we all encounter, you know, doing this work day to day. And I think making sure you have a good peer support system set up and, you know, some families are positioned to be that kind of support, but some aren't. Right. Right. And so that's okay, but having, you know, people that understand and that you trust who you can talk to if you're, if you're starting to really feel it and then not being afraid to seek professional help if necessary. Also, I would tell that to every new person. Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, there's many people in, including myself that, you know, there came a point where I had to swallow my pride and say, okay, I, I, I can't walk this journey by myself. And, and it certainly was a very humbling experience, but a, a life-changing experience as well. And when um, I would say to that, I would say to that, Eric, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, absolutely. So, like you'd be surprised like what good company you're in yeah. when you take those steps to get help for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we focus a little bit uh, differently where for, for me now, you know, being and speaking about stress, you know, it, it's not about what I want to hide. It's about, you know, the tools that I can share to say this really helped me. It may help you. And I know you have those experiences as well as I do. And um, I want to ask you this because I, 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 I'm looking at our timer, Krista, and I mean, we're like 50 minutes. I cannot believe that has flown by. And we're scratching the surface. I know. It's like <laughs> we, we definitely need to have you back on. Let's talk about leadership for a, a couple of minutes is, you know, what advice 
would you give someone that's been in the field and they come up to you and they say, Krista, I really respect what you do. You're a, a leader of influence and I want to get into the leadership profession or I want to become a leader. What advice would you give them? Um, I think studying, reading um, books and those types of works that are um, authored or presented by leaders that you respect and pull out sort of the, the best of the best of those and try to apply those to your own, um, you know, leadership practice and style. Um, it's, it's a never ending journey. Yeah. You know, like I'm, I will always be sort of a perpetual work in progress. Yes. I think, um, minding your own wellness is really important. Again, you know, I know this is sort of a, a recurring theme here, but I think it's important that it is because we have to be self-regulated. Mm -hmm. If you are um, reactive when, say, adverse events happen, people sense that. And I've been humbled many times thinking that I was coming into an adverse event, understanding what happened because I read the, the, the PCR and I read the incident report, which are, by the way, both very one dimensional, <laughs> right? Yes. Pieces of it, forms of information. And then when I shut my mouth and open my ears and listen, you know, I realize, wow, the context and sort of the richness of information that comes with people speaking from their perspective, you know, in order for me to be able to hear that, I have to not be reactive. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to be like, you did what? Yeah. yeah. You know, I had I had a case where um, there were it was kind of a the same type of event happened on both ends of the transport. And so I can understand on the front end of the transport and the crew had said they thought it probably wasn't a good idea, but then they did it again on the second end of the transport. And I, so I was trying to figure out, you know, in my mind at the time, I was like, why would you do that? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but you never want to come across that way, right? Yes, yes. And so it's, it's very much um, thinking about how you communicate, the words that you choose, mm. your tone, the modulation of your voice and yeah. those types of things. And when I was reviewing events from afar, over the phone or over teams, I spent, I expended a great deal of energy trying really hard to choose the right words mm -hmm. and trying really hard to make sure that my tone was appropriate for the situation and making sure I'm asking questions like, you know, instead of like, why on God's green earth, you know, saying, you know, what was your thought process behind this? Mm -hmm. You know? So, you know, I think we in healthcare and in a lot of industries are notorious for taking people that are good at their particular job, say EMT, you know, paramedic, communication specialists, and nurse, physician, whatever, what have you. And then we say, oh, we're going to put you in a management position. And then we don't give any kind of management, management training. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that the the training piece, the education on specifically leadership yeah. is really important. And even if the organizations don't provide that, there are plenty of opportunities to chase that down, you yeah. know, individually. And I think, you know, I'm a big fan of organizations providing some of that. And I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of individuals taking sort of responsibility and accountability for chasing down aspects of that themselves. So I read for myself personally, you know, on my leadership journey. I read a lot. I talked to, you know, other leaders and, you know, try to have mentors and coaches. Like I never want to stop being yeah. mentored and coached no matter where I'm at. And there's a great Ted talk actually by Atul Gawande called want to get good at something, get a coach. I listened to that. And it is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Right? Wasn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It makes you think about it a little bit differently. Um, you know, looking at the best athletes in the world as an example, all of them yeah. have coaches. Yeah. And right? it's it, it truly fascinating. I looked at it a little bit differently after watching that TED Talk about, you know, and I also think that there's ways that you can get 
like one coach is not for everything personally right from a leadership perspective you know if you're struggling with something you have a a mentor or a coach that can help you with that specifically right i want to talk about communicating or presenting or even personally you know my relationships whatever it is you know uh it, it would be like asking advice on how to raise kids with someone that doesn't have kids like there's a certain coach that can help you, coach you along but i agree i mean we certainly need those and uh, we have to get over ourselves to realize that the only way to get better is to intentionally get better and we talk about it all the time the most important person you're ever going to lead is you and it is the hardest person to lead is yourself because we are very easy to forgive ourselves and and you know oh your intentions were good eric but my actions were terrible so uh man there's there's so much there's so much to that i i do have um I, I wish this wasn't one of the final questions but you've given us so much to think about um all of your years of experience how has it changed your life personally for what you do oh gosh that's an amazing question um i think just the exposure i mean even starting from the beginning to all of these different patients and their stories and understanding how all these different people kind of got to where they are. And, you know, with our intersection being in the emergency department or in the ICU or in an aircraft, um, thinking about, you know, sort of the importance of the work that we do in healthcare and in transport. And it has, I've always been sort of, I think, I've always had, a, I think, a pretty good degree of empathy, but I have far deeper empathy now um, post, you know, taking care of all those patients and then certainly post um, the tragedies that we went through when I was flying. And then, you know, having responded to a number of other um, crashes in the air medical industry um, on incident response teams seeing things from the perspectives of the survivors, the surviving crew members, the surviving family members, patients. And it makes me think about how can we do things better in, you know, EMS, in air medical transport, in hospitals, in healthcare overall. And so um, I sort of always have this sort of, um, I don't want to say nagging because I don't want it to sound negative, but drive to pursue a better way, you know, to to care for our people, our communities, because, you know, we we talk about and there's so much going on, like all of this is swimming upstream, swimming upstream really hard, like all of these mm -hmm. things that we've talked about, because our society right now seems like it's very heavily focused on um, really poor communication, like communication through sound bites, yeah. um, not seeking to understand. Yeah blame, judgment, not having thoughtful conversations, not breaking really complex issues down, um, and really kind of violating most of the principles of high reliability organizations, you know, like reluctance to simplify, deference to expertise, commitment to resilience, all these different things that build high reliability. Like I feel like we as a country should be looking at those and just culture and figuring out how we can better serve our community because, you know, they say, it's the economy, stupid, right? But the economy is built upon healthy people able to contribute to it and not be, you know, I don't want to say burdensome in a negative way, but, you know, sort of withdraw from it. And so, you know, that's something that that sort of is always in the, the forefront of my mind and how do we create cultures within our respective organizations within, uh, within healthcare as a whole that makes clear that our values are health and care of people. And, and how do we do that in such a complex world? So that's uh, kind of a really philosophical answer, but that's been, you know, something I've been really heavily interested in and focused on. Well, we, 
are so thankful that you spent time with us today on the Timsa Leadership Podcast. And we want to thank you for what it is that you do. And uh, we will be reaching back out for a part two. So uh, we, would, oh, great. We, we would love to do that. But thank you so much for your time today. Well, and thank you all. This is a wonderful podcast. And I'm so excited that you're, you're focused on leadership. You guys do such a great job. So thank you so much for having me. I am so grateful that I was able to share this conversation with you today. Please share this episode with others and give it a five-star review. Until next time, remember, be intentional about your leadership journey. And remember, the most important person that you will ever lead is you.